The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, my name is Joni Siegel, and this is The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. I'm your host, <clears throat> excuse me, for the show. And my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer and also the co-founder of this podcast. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating because that way when people are searching for help with addiction, they come across our podcast. And it is our hope that the different interviews and stories that we tell will give hope to others and will also let them know that help is available for addiction. Today's episode is episode number 347, and today we have an interview. Reminder also to subscribe to our YouTube channel and also give our videos a thumbs up. Same reason. When you give us a thumbs up, it helps Google find us so that when people are looking for help, they find our podcast. Today's interview is with a gentleman named Joe Seeley. Joe is a current cast member on a program, The Real Housewives of Cheshire. Who knew that there was a Real Housewives program in England, but why not? Says it is a globally televised show seen in 36 countries. He says that while it appears that he has led a glamorous life on screen, his journey has been marked by personal struggles, particularly his battle with addiction to cocaine and alcohol. His story is not just one of success, but of resilience, transformation, and the importance of sharing the reality behind the glitz and glamour. I think that's actually very true. He's got a book called On Days Like These, and it is a testament to his recovery journey. He wants to emphasize that the image that people see on television doesn't always tell the full story. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't. So without further ado, let's talk to Joe Seeley. Joe Seeley, thank you for being willing to talk to us on the podcast today. No problem, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So tell us where you grew up, what your life was like, and you know what um, led you down the path of addiction, because I know you have a good recovery story, but tell us what started it all. A good recovery story, but tell us what started. Okay, so the, 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 the um, connection just went really bad, Joe. I'm going to have to... Uh, Is that better? Yeah. Better? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was really weird all of a sudden. Yeah, it sort of juddered, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, tell us your story. Okay, so my childhood, I was, um, I suppose, the type of childhood that everybody would want. I had um, two loving parents that had been together since they were 14 years old, and my dad was, a, uh, at the time, a very famous football player, soccer player. In England, and he played for clubs like Manchester United and Aston Villa, and played played in all the big for the big clubs for his whole of his life and the whole of my childhood. But with that, we um, we moved around the country a little bit, and I went to different schools, and and I had quite a you know a lovely childhood. My mum and dad were always at home, and I got in from school. Never had arguments. Was never hit. No abuse. Very normal, loving, caring parents. In fact, my dad always says to people that I didn't realise that people's parents or fathers wasn't at home at 3, 3 p.m. when they got in from school. Because when you play football, you finish about 1 p.m. And he was always at home when, when I got in. So I didn't realise that people's parents weren't at home 
when they got home from school until mm. I was about 20 years old, I think, and I started, um, started my life. So, you know, from that side of, of, of my life, pretty straightforward. I was around a lot of famous people at the time, but I didn't really realise it because it, I was I was born into it. There was always there people that know soccer. I was around the, the most famous players in the world, David Beckham, Eric Cantona, all the Man United players. Um, and it was just normal life uh, for me. My dad was a very normal guy. He um, he didn't do any of the celebrity stuff. He wouldn't do interviews. He didn't talk to people. Um, he literally come home, would, would stay indoors, watch the telly, drink black coffee, eat sandwiches and play with his car um, and play with me and my brother and the garden whenever we wanted. And, you know, that was that my childhood, I, I would say, was pretty straightforward. Unfortunately for me, I also played football and I was good at it. And I come through the the system here and I went into a professional club when I left school at 16. I got a really bad injury when I was 16 and I had to have a, uh, a complete shoulder reconstruction. Oh, wow. I was a goalkeeper as well. And um, I missed a year of that. And what when, when I missed that year, I had to have the operation I had meant that I wasn't allowed to move my arm for six months. And, oh. and I, wore a, I wore a body suit. Do you remember the film Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah, yeah. I wore a bodysuit that was like that bodysuit. So it pinned my arm. So it's, it surrounded my top half of my body for six months. And wow. it caused a lot of trauma to my body. And when they, when they finally let me move my arm, I actually physically couldn't move my arm. And the physios at the club spent the next six months basically forcing my arm open again so I could move. And I was okay. But at the same time, they said to me, if this ever happens again, if your shoulder dislocates again, you, you are finished. You can't play no more. That is it. And I was okay for two years. And I trained one day and my shoulder went pop. Oh. And that was the end of my career oh. uh, at that at that point in my life in that stage. And I think that at that point, I was 19 nearly, but I'd spent my whole life and, you know, not trying as hard as I could at school. Everything was focused towards football. Because if you're, I don't know how it works in the US, but if you're good at sport in the UK, and you're at these clubs, you don't have to go to school every day. You can <laughs> you, you can go three days a week. So I didn't fulfill my schooling as hard as I could and and everything. So I had that. Ten days after that happened to me, my father died of a heart attack. Um, and he was completely fine. So it was a, what they call a, a fluke, a one in a billion chance heart attack. He went out in the morning and he, and he was dead in the afternoon. And... That moment there changed my life forever. Um, they both did, but in very different ways. I think that it was the start of everything for me. When, when I was playing football, I was very disciplined. I didn't, I, I never even had a drink of alcohol at that point. If I had, it was once or twice, very rarely. And it wasn't for me. You have to be, like all professional sportsmen in any sport, professional and give it your all. And I lost my discipline as in my my football career, and I lost my father, who was my discipline at home. My mum, my mum's still with us, and she's a lovely woman, my mum, but she's very soft. Mm. And um, she'd lost her husband that she'd been with since she was 14 years old, at 42. So it was a really bad time for me. And looking back at that period, and I talk to a lot of people now who've lost a parent or a partner, and I always say my number one piece of advice for that is get them talking, because I didn't. I had a younger brother 
And I thought, I've got to be the man. Nah. But I'm 18 years old, nearly 19, and I wasn't. I mean, I've got children now that are in their 20s. And I look at them and think they couldn't have coped with it. But what I thought I had to do was not not cry in front of my in front of my mum and my brother. And I used to get in the shower every morning, roll up in a bowl, let the shower at me for 20 minutes and just cry my eyes out. And looking at that now, it took me 10 years of pain and to unravel that, that period of my life and realise that actually I'd, I'd suffocated myself emotionally and I learned not to not to live really hmm. and i was probably over the next 12 months well the next 10 years but the first 12 months highly depressed without knowing it and without and without showing it and one day one day i was at a party and somebody said to me do you want do you want a light do you want this do you want this cut do you want this drug and it was out on the kitchen side and i done one line and i was so naive to drugs i was so naive i didn't know anyone that did drugs if I had any friends at school that did drugs, I stopped socialising with them because I played football. But that diet, I took that line of coke. And do you know what, Joni, the truth is I felt better. Mm -hmm. And I say to people now, at that point in my life, that drug saved my life. But by the end, it took everything from me. It took my soul, my personality, my life. Um, it nearly killed me. And I was uh, very quickly from that from that night onwards, I was never a great, and I'm still not, I'm not a big socialiser, a bit like my dad, and I don't like busy places, I don't like bars, I don't like nightclubs. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counsellor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. We appreciate you listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to contribute to our podcast, please go to bit.ly slash fight drugs. That's HTTPS colon slash slash B-I-T dot L-Y slash fight drugs and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. And I would frequent these places during that first year so I could use drugs because I didn't know a drug dealer. <laughs> Believe it or not, and at this point, I'm living in London, so I should have known, but I didn't. And um, by the time I was, by the time I was 21 years old, I, I, I distinctly remember my 21st birthday. 
I went round to my grandparents for a, a Chinese takeaway. I left very quickly, maybe within an hour. I bought some Jack Daniels on the way home from the her service station, petrol station. Here you can buy alcohol in the UK and the petrol station don't even can in the US. And I bought a, a quarter of an ounce of cocaine. And that was the first time that I didn't leave the house and I used. And I probably never used in public again. I think that I did that and I thought, I can't believe I'm going out. I can stay here. I've discovered the secret to life and I'm happy. I'm by myself. I can do what I want. I'm using drugs and drinking, which at that point I wasn't, I still didn't really like the taste of alcohol. I mainly just took drugs every day. And I've discovered the secret and I thought it was fun. And I thought it was fun and I played my own little games, how long I could stay awake and how long I could go for and all of this, just sitting in a in an apartment by myself. I got rid of my friends, my family, my partner at the time, and anyone else that would try and stop me doing what I now saw as my purpose in life, which now looking back was probably trying to stay alive. And, and what, I, what I'd done is every time I was sober, all them feelings were coming up, I was taking that drug and they'd go away. Right. And I think at the same time as that, because it was such a, a young period and a period of my adult development, is that I learned that, learned that to do with everything as I, as it, you know, and it went into my later life, unfortunately. And I spent the next, I spent that next three years of, of my life to about 23 years old using cocaine. Not, not, I didn't drink that much, to be honest, but using cocaine every single day, wow. every, all day, every day to the point where, I would let a drug dealer live in my ass for free, but I was still buying the drugs so that I could have a consistent flow of it where I could always get it. And uh, the breaking point for me at that period was, um, I think I was on a, I don't think I slept at that. I mean, I might be wrong here, but I don't think I slept for 10 days. One oh my point. God. Mum went to South Africa. And when she come back, I'd pass that in my office chair. And I slept for two days on this chair. When I woke up, I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And um, I've got to stop because every everything I did, my eyes were watering, my nose was bleeding, things were falling off, everything, my ears were bleeding, everything, I was, I was in the right state. And to be honest with you, I eased off at that point. I didn't stop, but I did realise I had a problem. And I went to AA, but I couldn't. I couldn't stay with it and I'd use, I'd go out again. Normally I'd socialize and drink and go to bars and use and a couple of times a week thinking that it was pretty normal. Um, and that got me to, I met my wife, met my wife in a, in a bar. My wife is a very, very, still is annoyingly normal person. <laughs> She's beautiful. Drink. Very, very beautiful, but very normal. Might have a drink three, four times a year, never touch drugs, goes out for a meal and leaves like half a glass of wine over there and doesn't drink it. And the kind of person I wish I was. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not. And I met her and she didn't really have any experience or know what I was like. Because, she, you know, she'd never been around people like me. I had. And, you know, and what, what I did was I, I hid it. I hit it and, you know, then she thought I might be using a bit when we went out, but that's okay. I'm 25, 26, but eventually it becomes very clear that I'm a complete fucking lunatic. Sorry for swearing. I'm a complete lunatic. <laughs> okay. 
I just have um, to say it's not clean. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a, you never know, though, do you? You never know. Yeah. So, no, I know. I know. I'm just a complete lunatic and a, and a, and a loose cannon. And, you know, in theory, really, I can't be trusted. But what, what, what she did was help me. But at the same time, at that point, I still wasn't ready to stop. So I'm, I'm in and out of, I'm in and out, in and out of AICA. But I'm not really getting it. And I don't want to be there. And I definitely don't want anybody else to know about it. So if I'm in it that week, I'm not drinking. I'm, I'm ill. I'm on a tablet. I'm not drinking because of something. And I went to Riyadh that year at 26 for the first time. And um, I went for I went for anger, not for... <laughs> <laughs> I have to laugh. I have to laugh because I got to do to the Priory, which is the UK version, I suppose, of the Betty Ford clinic. And... I got there and they said to me, you, you take drugs, yeah, but your main problem seems to be anger. And they give me a book called Anger is a Drug. And I went, I left, I left within a week. And I went, I'm not a drug addict. I've got an anger issue. <laughs> so I spent the next year having therapy for anger, but still, still using. And as I got towards, it stayed like that. It, there's no point in me going through it. it. It stayed like that till I was, I was around 30. And, um, you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. I become a what I would call a binger at that point, where because she was now she now realised what I was doing. It wasn't I couldn't hide it anymore. My at this point in my life, when I use it, was same thing would happen today if I used. My voice changes. I sound now like Ozzy Osbourne. I can't function. I can't walk properly. I can't move. My brain shuts down now. So she would always ring me and, and see how I sounded. And I'd been on a three day bender and I didn't come home. And um, I sat in this hotel room. I always sat in a hotel room by myself at this point, drinking neat vodka and just sniffing cocaine, watching daytime telly programs like Cheers or whatever was on, whatever was on. And I just, it just go round and round. And I stood in this hotel room and I thought, what am I going to say? I thought, I'll tell her what, because I was meant to be at an AA meeting, but I, you know, I didn't come up. I'm going to say I had a fight and I was arrested. So I stood in the mirror in the Hilton Hotel that was in in London. And I held the hairdryer in my hands. And I thought, right, hit yourself in the face with this hairdryer. So I picked the hairdryer up and I hit myself in the face. <laughs> Several times till I had a black eye. I then went down to the, the payphone, called my wife and said, I've had a fight, I've been arrested, they've let me out. She didn't believe me, which, because why would you? I come home. She wasn't there for the first time ever. She'd gone to work and I made a fake arrest sheet on my computer, printed it off, rang my drug dealer and started using again. She rang me and could tell I was using and said to me, you need help. I've rang the Priory. I'm not taking you. You you need to go to the Priory again and you need to sort yourself out. And I did that. And I myself I put, I put my drugs in the kitchen high because my wife's only five foot two she can't reach things that are high so i hide i used to hide hide it on top of the cupboards and um i went to the priory for 30 days and 
the truth is, I give everything I had when I was there for them 30 days. Mm, maybe. Except for, I never told anyone I had drugs in the kitchen. And um, I left the Priory after, I think, in doing everything I can. And I went home and I, and I, and I remember doing it. I remember putting my hand on top of the kitchen, touching it. It was still there. But she told me she'd gone gone through everything in the house when I was in there. And it was still there. And I thought, thank God. And I felt better again. Like that first time when I was 20. And um, I'd started using again within two days, one or two days, drinking and using. And still going in. The, the scary thing is, and the sick part of this is, I was still going in for daycare. So I'm still going in, half using, half drinking, but sobering up to go. And I, I can only manage that for a couple of days. And on about the fourth day, I never made it to the to the rehab centre for daycare. I sat on a park bench, drinking vodka out of a brown bag, sniffing drugs, reading the newspaper and smoking a cigar. And <laughs> that picture of me doing that would sum my, my life up. Because I always say to everybody, even now, people say to me, you're not like that, or you're not going to be like I say I am. If I didn't have the people around me, the resources I've got and the family I've got, I would be sit on the streets drinking and using drugs i have done it i will do it and it will happen to me because mm. that's where i go with it it doesn't stop it and, it and it doesn't and um i went back to the went back to the rehab center um the day after that day i was sitting on the park all day and they wouldn't have me back they wouldn't have me back and um that night i went to ca um at, what is ca is that Co cocaine Anonymous. Cocaine Anonymous. Okay. Yeah. I don't, do you have that in the US? Cocaine Anonymous? Or I've never heard of it before, so I doubt it. It might just be here. So it, it's the same, it follows the AA, same tradition, same everything. But And um, my wife dropped me. I couldn't drive. I was banned from driving at this point. And she's so angry with me because I think that I talk about this a lot now. Families, people, even addicts, when you go into rehab the first time and you think that 28, 30 days is fixing you forever. And I wish it was. And when it doesn't, it breaks everybody's heart more than what you've previously done because they've got a bit of hope. Yep. And she was so angry and she tried to run me over. Oh. <laughs> she tried to run me over in the car park and crashed the car into a tree. But she still drove me to the meeting. So I went to the meeting and I was sober for, I got sober. I got sober for a couple of years. A year and a half at that point, 18 months. And we were living in London and life seemed good and I was okay and I was happy sober. I've always been happy sober. But at the same time, I thought, I'm 32, I'm successful. I just sold my business, which I got, I got an eight figure sum for my business at 32. Not that this has anything to do with it really, but I thought, I want to move. So there was an opportunity to move 200 miles north to a place called Wilmslow, which is in Cheshire, where we live now. And I said, I'll move there first, and then you come after, once we're settled, just in case the kids don't like it, stay in school. And within the first day I went there, or no, even on the way of driving there, I picked up. Hmm. I picked up. And um, How old were your kids, Joe? Um, at that point, or... At that point, they were, so one was 
15, one was 13, one was 12, 11. Okay. 11. So they were, they, they experienced a lot of your addiction. Loads of it. Okay. I mean, it's the biggest, I'll be honest with you, the biggest regret of my, of all of it is that. I understand. That person would put me in a car and I would drive them to school and I would pick them up because I didn't. And the truth is, it's like all drugs. Drugs to me did everything opposite to how I would act in my normal life. And the things I believe in, I did the opposite. And the, and the thing, the scariest thing is that at the time I did that stuff to show that I wasn't using. The, how crazy does that sound? I put my kids in the car to prove I'm not using when I am. Not just right. being attacked. You know, I, I get it. I understand. I got away with it. Nothing ever happened, and thank God it didn't. Yeah. And um, obviously, I started using again. And from that point on, to I was 35, I was a binger, but a real bad one so same thing i would disappear i'd be in a shit motel hotel drinking vodka taking drugs always by myself i didn't want anyone around me and my wife eventually my one of my bank cards was go ping and she'd know where i was and she'd drive to that hotel kick the door down and save me and it would happen twice a year it would happen twice a year and the um the last time I remember, you know, she left me. She, I started when I was with her. I was in London at an awards thing with her, and I left her. She left me there. And I carried on for four days. But when I when I got home, I looked. I walked Before I, before I walked in, I thought, I'm done. I'm done with it. I, I was done before. I was always done. I just couldn't stay. I, was, I knew I was done. And I, I was sick of, I was sick of saying sorry to the woman I loved. I'm sick of saying sorry to the woman that stood by me for everything that never done anything to me. Um, and I was sick of disappointing her. And the fact that, that that during that period, there was something that she really wanted to do and I was doing it with her and she didn't get to do it because of me. Mm. And then I walked in, I looked at her and I thought, I'm never ever going to say sorry to you for this ever again, ever. And I never picked up again. Mm. And, I mean, that's not coincidence. It don't just happen. But I, the truth is, for me, I don't go to meetings. I don't go to meetings anymore. And not because of, I don't think that works. It didn't work for me. But the reason it didn't work for me is because I manipulated it. I I manipulated the groups. I manipulated the people. I had, I had some woman baking me cakes. I'd have so-and-so doing this. I'd have, I was doing work and business with different people in there because actually that's what I'm like. I'm good at sales and I'm good with people. It's a little bit like a, a football team change room. And I could turn up at AA and manipulate it to get what I wanted out of it. Now, that's my sickness, not theirs, but it never, it never worked for me. So I had to find a, a different way and... In actual fact, Johnny, my, I'm a very, very simple person. The things I like are very simple. I don't really like going out that much, so that's good. I don't really like the taste of alcohol, even though I can drink it near out of bottles and drink it. So I never had that draw to alcohol. Drugs was always my, my primary. So I got into a routine, and slowly but surely, and I always say to everybody, it, this is a one-day-at-a-time thing. And at some point in my using uh, recovery, it was a one minute at a time or a 10 minute at a time. And I had a massive issue, a huge issue of being alone. I hate being by myself. 
Um, my favourite my favorite thing in the world is going to bed and watching a box set with my wife or watching a box set in the front room, living room with my wife on the TV or watching just watching something with my wife. As soon as she's not there, it's, it's the thing, like, I can't do it. I can't relax. I can't. And I had to work that out. And that meant sometimes I had to go out walking for two hours at a time or <laughs> sit in the bath or talk to the dog or go and stay at my friend's home for, for the first period of time. But, you know, slowly but surely, one day at a time, my life got immeasurably better. And, you know, my life on the outside, which I think is really important here, my life on the outside was always great. I always had a nice home. I always had nice cars. I always had nice things. But inside, I was fucking dying. Yeah. I wanted to burn my ass down, kill my fa family, kill me. Like, my head can take me anywhere. So I think that's 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 what's important. It's not what you've got; it's what you've got in your in your in your mind. Um, because you can be so unhappy with everything, and so happy with nothing. And sobriety has given me that. Yeah. You know, and How long have you been sober? I don't. Re I, I don't. I've been sober multiple years, Johnny. But what I, the, I let me let me explain this. Yep. I used to go into recovery. And the thing that I struggled with the most is when people said they was 5, 10, 20, 50 years sober. I used to think, you liar. I don't believe you. And I can't do it. <laughs> and, I can't, and I can't do it. So I like to say now that I'm multiple years sober. I'm a long way, long way from it. But I'm as sober as anybody can be for today. So I'm sober today. It's, it's half past 8 p.m. in the UK. And... I'm probably going to go to bed sober tonight, but tomorrow when I wake up at 6 a.m., it starts again. Yep. And that's the way I do it. I keep it in the day and depending on how I feel. But doing that for me works. When I started thinking about lengths of time, I could never do it. I could just I couldn't do it. I could not get my head around it. Um, and then every time I'd relapse, I'd feel beaten. And I you know, well, and truthfully, I well, it would be great to say, okay, you've been sober five years or however long, and but it doesn't matter because tomorrow you have to wake up and say, today I'm going to be sober. Correct, and that's that's what you have to do every day. And yeah. actual fact, I had a message today, someone that doesn't know me on social media. Actually, it was last night, and they said, I've drove to. I'm trying to get to be sober. I've drove two hundred miles to occupy myself so i don't drink and i and i messaged them back last night and i said well let me tell me explain saying i said don't that sound mental that you drove 200 miles to avoid drinking you could have went to a local meeting or you could have went around to friends but i said i'll tell you what's even more better mental is that you haven't drunk and tomorrow if you're not drunk now you will wake up sober and you will feel different because the fact is it will pass yeah. And that that that's for good and bad. It will pass when I feel good and it will pass when I feel bad. But now I don't have to put something in me, a substance or a drink, to change the way I feel. And that's huge. That's huge, Joe. Game changer. Yeah. The game changer. Wow. Yeah. Now I how mean, did this okay, now how did this person know how to reach out to you? Like how how Because I do things like this, Johnny. So I I'm openly clean. People I don't hide it. I talk about it. I'm happy to talk about everything I've ever done because 
I never used to be able to. And I think that made a big difference. That that day when I stopped, I finally went to people, well, I don't drink because I'm an addict. Or I'm, I'm, you know, it's no good for me. I do this. And I tell people, when I used to not, when I used to lie, not even lie, but, you know, just say hide I'm not it, drinking. Yeah. Yeah, hide it, not drinking because of, I don't know, anything. It didn't work. Sorry, one of my kids are on the thing. Sorry. Oh. It, Sorry, someone's looking at it. Um, it. It didn't work. So to be honest, I have to be honest with everybody. And that means my immediate family, my children, and people I don't know. And um, that's that's what I did. And that's what I do today. And that's how people know how to reach me because I I openly do podcasts. I've got a book that's come out recently about my father and my life and the grief I suffered. Um, what's the name of the book? It's called On Days Like These. So. It's a long story, but I'll shorten it down. In 1994, my dad did this book, but it was never released, and I didn't know about it. It was 15 years after he died. I met the guy that he'd done it with, and he gave me a packed lunchbox full of old cassette tapes and manuscripts. And I still haven't listened to the tapes, actually. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) I gave it to a a new writer, and they took it apart, and and they made this book, and they said there's only half a book, and they interviewed us. And I told them what happened to me, the story you just heard. And they went, we're going to make it about that. So there's public stuff. And that's been number one now on Amazon in the UK for 12 weeks. It's been Say amazing. the name again, On Days Like This? Yeah, look, it's called On Days Like These. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so On Days Like These. So, and now that's just being made into a documentary film, which it's gone a lot bigger than we ever thought it, it would go. So, cool. you know, so because of that, I'm happy to, to talk about it. I am on tv in the uk as well now um and i have been for four or five years now on a on a program called the real housewives of cheshire which is very similar to the u.s franchise. same it's the same franchises as the u.s ones because your beautiful um, wife is a real uh, housewife in cheshire yeah she is but my wife my wife's a bit unusual she does run a, a bit her own business she employs nearly a thousand people she owns a railway construction company my wife oh my so, goodness yeah, she's start, yeah, she's been running it for I think it's 30 years next year. Wow. So, you know, she's on that with me. We do it as a family and with our friends, and that gives me a lot more exposure. And Whoop. you froze there for a second, Joe. I must have lost the Wi-Fi for a second. Have you got me again? Yep, oh, now I got you again. You're good. And how do people how do people find you, Joe? If someone wants to reach out and I'm on I'm on social media, so it's Joe underscore Sealy One on instagram uh joe seely one on tiktok and joe seely one on uh, twitter or, with no it, one with no underscore on twitter and yeah okay. only instagram for that okay um, i'm always happy to talk about recovery addiction awesome. and what because it's what i said before people see this program or and all this stuff and they think what you know you got it made well i didn't i didn't have it made i wanted to die yeah. every day and for the last, you know, I'm it's not hard. I'm nearly 41. You know, okay. if I was 35, it's not hard for people to work it out. But, you know, my life is exactly the same on the outside, but inside it's immeasurably better. And it's because of people like you doing things like this that helps. Because no one no one spoke about it when I was trying to get clean. Not yeah. anyone. And yeah. I think that's so important. Well, thank you. Thank you for being willing to talk to us today. As I said before we started, you know, we know that there are, um, 
celebrities who don't want to talk about their their prior their prior addiction. And I think it's important because you know, we look up to celebrities. We look up to people who are on television and we assume that their life's in really good shape. And I think when when they are honest, like you are, in saying wasn't always that way, I think that's huge. I think that resonates with people. Yeah, it's, it's like what I said to you before. We can't just live a life where we take. So if it's part of your life, talk about it. Because somebody spoke to you about it. Somebody certainly spoke to me about it. For for ten years, people speak to me about it. So, you know, it's time for me to give that back. Exactly, Joe Seely. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much for your time. God bless. Thank you for listening and watching today. Um, great interview with Joe Seely, um, a man who has come back from addiction. Is very candid about it. Um, once again, the name of the book is On Days Like These, and it's available on Amazon. And if you want to reach out to him, he's either Joe underscore Seely, S-E-A-L-E-Y one, or just Joe Seely one. I didn't catch which social media was which. Anyway, we'll be back again with another interview. Please, please, please. The holidays are right around the corner. If you need help, get it now. If you have a loved one or a friend that needs treatment, do it now. Don't wait. Please don't wait. We love you. Thank you for listening. We'll be back. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.